This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, the truth, it's out there. So I, I really have to know, last week we talked about which one of us was the by-the-books cop and which one, was, one of us was the loose cannon who mm-hmm. plays by their own rules. But, you know, I'm since you brought up the truth is out there i'm curious which one of us is the molder and which one is the scully in this in this relationship i mean i feel like i'm the spooky one i I don't get a very spooky vibe from you necessarily so i feel like that probably means i'm molder yeah you're, you're probably right you're also the alien enthusiast so that tracks with the molder persona as well listeners we are going to be talking about all things paranormal with our review of jordan peele's latest sci-fi horror comedy blockbuster nope That's a lot of adjectives for a single movie. Hopefully, we will be able to see if it's able to pull that off. I get paid by the hyphen. (laughs) Good. Um, We are also going to be taking a look at Sidney Poitier's directorial debut, Buck and the Preacher, which happens to be a Western that isn't necessarily everything that it seems to be on the surface. Lots of things aren't what they seem to be on the surface on this episode, episode 343 of Seeing and Believing. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say, since the moment pitches could move, we had skin in the game. Yes, we're here on episode 343 of Seeing and Believing. I'm a little bit disappointed that we weren't able to find a version of our theme song that was played via theremin. <laughs> but, you know, you, 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 you go to war with the tools you have. So, you know, just the, the normal uh, show theme as per usual. But. It's a good reason for me to pick up the theremin at some point. Like, what's another hobby? Might as well learn another instrument. Well, one of my friends actually owns the theremin, and I, I can't remember... I'm not sure how far she got in her in her theremin playing lessons, but I do have potential access to a theremin. So, oh man, if you're serious about that, I could see if she's willing to to lend it out. Please hook me up. That would be awesome. Well, that'll we'll we'll table that for now. That's going to come up maybe for another episode where aliens are on the menu. You know that there's going to be more aliens. I mean, you're talking to me. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. You are the the molder, as we said before. Of course. Um, but we are going to be talking about something that's very much not aliens uh, in the second half of the show. We are going to be talking about a Western mm-hmm. for our watch list pick and a very 
big first for the watch list, a pick that neither of us had seen. So they were both going into fresh. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to that in a second. But for now, let's turn our attention to Jordan Peele's Nope. This is his third film as a writer and director, and it sees him uh, dipping his toes into some some new waters for him, uh, specifically uh, a little bit of the sci-fi flavor in this movie. Some flying saucers may or, or may not figure into the plot somewhere in here. This film stars Daniel Kaluuya as Otis, a horse wrangler on a California ranch whose father dies in a freak accident when an assortment of debris mysteriously falls from the sky. Soon, Otis and his sister Emerald, played by Kiki Palmer, are watching the skies often as they have more things to worry about than just nickels and keys falling out of a clear blue sky. Their horses begin mysteriously disappearing and strange sounds emanate from the clouds. Are people and animals being abducted by flying saucers? Or is the true reality much, much different? And worse. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a really intriguing premise. Uh, anyone who saw the trailers for this film, obviously, or at least if they're anything like me, was really intrigued by it. So I was mm -hmm. looking forward to this film quite a bit. And I know, Sarah, this is one of your most anticipated films of the year. Oh, yeah, easily. Like, I've just been looking forward to it ever since it's announced. We can probably talk a little bit about Jordan Peele's track record, but I, for one, am in the bag for basically anything he does. So, Right. I mean, uh, Get Out was in incredible. I know you you had a lot of love for Us as well. I, mm -hmm. I admired Us. I was kind of looking forward to um, something maybe a little bit I don't know. I was I was a little lukewarm on us. So I was really looking forward to Jordan Peele kind of making a return to form, at least in my book. But to get us started on this discussion, uh, I kind of would like to talk a little bit about that sci-fi angle. Because like I said, the, those are slightly new waters for him. The hmm. narrative structure of Nope is also maybe a little bit more complex than we've seen in his previous two films. Whereas those kind of had a pretty simple uh, straight through line, you know, centering on a, a single group of characters. Um, the characters of Nope are much more uh, multifarious and kind of have a lot of different uh, plot strands going mm -hmm. throughout the film. So I'm curious to know uh, this being a film you're looking forward to a lot and you being a huge admirer of Peel, what did you make of this uh, slightly, not not a departure, I guess, mm -hmm. but what did you make of these new waters for him? Did you, do you think he successfully navigated them? It feels like a refinement of his previous approaches. So I actually hmm. maintain that everything Jordan Peele has done on some level is sci-fi. Like, Get Out has an element of sci-fi with a okay. little bit of like some of those body swapping sort of elements. Spoilers, I guess, for a movie that's been out for five years now. And then Us also, like, I, I feel like that premise with the doppelgangers kind of dips its toes a little bit into sci-fi. Definitely speculative fiction. So maybe just SF instead of true sci-fi. But okay. I think it's I think it's territory that he is very familiar with and comfortable with. But I think that he's reaching new heights with Nope, if that's that a good makes Sense. No, that's a good point. I didn't think of it, of it that way. But yeah, you, you've convinced yeah. me. Sweet. Wonderful. Horror and sci-fi, um, both of which are my two favorite genres. So I think I was always going to be at the very least intrigued by whatever it was that he was doing here. Um, but I do think that what he's doing with the plot and the different characters and the way all of them sort of bounce off each other in this feels like 
a little bit more of what I w- had been sort of looking for, even as an admirer of his previous films, if that makes sense. So I know Get Out kind of helped to kickstart the conversation about elevated horror, you know, like high concept horror, where it's sort of built around a singular metaphor. And I think that's kind of that structure that you're talking about, where it is like a very specific plot that revolves around a small group of characters, and it's very tight and self-contained. And Us is kind of in that same vein as well. This doesn't feel quite so high concept to me, I think. And I think part of that is because he's willing to loosen up and let his characters sort of run where they may and have like differing backstories that don't necessarily look like they all add up into the same general theme, at least at first glance. Does that make sense? That that makes sense. Um, and I'm really excited about the, the conversation ahead of us because I would actually argue that oh. all of it does kind of tie together into, into a single theme. Although what I like about Nope is that... I mean, you know, Get Out's a, a very good film, but it's also very much like you can, you get what it's going for pretty much right off the bat. You know, this is a, a film about race. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's satire and it's, it's lens on, uh, the different forms that racism can take mm-hmm. is very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in, in that way, it's a very easy film to read. Mm-hmm. This film, I think, um, it, it does kind of center around, uh, a single theme, but it's not so obvious, and you kind of have to watch through the whole thing before you kind of get what Peel is up to here. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be tremendously rewarding. I was really impressed with this film. I think it's pro- arguably his most ambitious film that he's made yet. Yes. Um, I think that there's a lot going on here, and I think that while Get Out is probably overall the the stronger film, if we're just kind of thinking about something that's really, like you said, tight and self-contained and, and very solid. I think this film it uh, has moments that are funnier than anything else he's ever done, mm-hmm. moments that are scarier than anything else he's ever done, mm-hmm. and moments I think that are just straight up more beautiful than anything he's ever done. I think it's it's a really strong piece of work. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Maybe um, not a single theme, like I like I'd said, might not necessarily be the most accurate way to get at, so maybe we can tease that out a little bit here. Um I feel like my my beef with this idea of elevated horror, which is what I kept coming back to when I was thinking about Nope in comparison to Peel's other movies and then other horror movies, especially of the last five to ten years, is this idea of you can take the horrible thing that is happening on screen and map it to some sort of social issue that's going on mm-hmm. in the outside world. And I think that you can also do that with Nope, but it's not just about that metaphor or the metaphor for the metaphor's sake. I think that it is both just a scary story that can be read completely straight. And it also has these other deeper themes that sort of enrich that story in a lot of interesting ways. So that's, that's kind of, I think what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm curious to know what, what themes do you see in this film? Cause mm-hmm. I, I have my own ideas and I kind of want to, I'm going to put you on the spot first because I want to see, uh, you know, if we took the same thing away from it or similar things at least. I mean, the big one seems to be about the idea of, of fame and entertainment as being kind of a wild animal that can't be tamed. Hmm. And there's a very strong through line of just wild animals and also domesticated animals. Um, 
that these different characters sort of relate to and respect in varying levels. And I think that that maps pretty beautifully with Otis and Emerald's like attempts to break back into Hollywood as, as the co-owners, I, I suppose, of the Haywood Ranch. They're trying to make sure that um, they can make a living with the horses that their father originally trained. Um, and I think that, especially in an earlier scene, there's this kind of sign of almost disrespect from the general like entertainment complex towards both of these characters and then also towards the animals that they work with. Um, there at the beginning, this is an early scene that is also in the trailer. So it doesn't feel too spoilery to like break this one down a little bit. Um, there's a scene where they're going to be helping to film a commercial with the help of a horse. And there's a brief safety meeting in which Emerald played by Kiki Palmer kind of gives a bit of a spiel about safety and the history of their family within Hollywood. And then she also like plugs a few of her side hustles and Otis is very careful to say like, don't do that this around the horse. Don't walk around the backside of the horse. Don't look it directly in the eye, like respect this animal because it is much larger than you and very dangerous. And everybody else on the set seems to brush both of these characters off and by extension, brush off this very dangerous animal that is also on set um, to unpleasant consequences where Nobody gets hurt necessarily, but there was the real capacity for harm. And after the aftermath of what happens on that set, you can see a green screen like horse shape sort of being wheeled on set behind <laughs> Otis and Emerald as they're being told, like, we're, we're not going to be hiring you for this job today. And I kept thinking about that image of like a very static shape of an animal that could potentially signify something, but is incredibly safe and tame and controllable and something that you can use basically however you want without any complications from that. So there's that. And then there's also this additional theme within the movie of fame being something that you can't necessarily control. And once it's out of the bag, it's never going back in. And I found both of those two things to kind of marry up with each other really, really well. That's interesting. I, I like that reading. That's not the, the theme that oh, I, cool. I picked. So I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a solid reading when, and I don't disagree with it. I think what is also coursing beneath the surface of this film is um, a very layered look at uh, humanity's capacity for hubris as it regards uh, the world around us mm. um, and the capacity that people have to want to harness and control um, the world around us for our own ends, often for, you know, for entertainment mm -hmm. or for profit. Um, but there's a character who comes into the film. Well, we see, we see him early in the film, but he only has a, a, me, a big role in it, uh, in the, probably in the final act. He's a cinematographer, mm -hmm. uh, who is just, you know, super famous and is just well known for being able to get great shots. The great impossible footage, shot. The impossible shot. Yeah. And we see through his character a little bit of the, the human desire to kind of capture the world around him and kind of contain it within a, a camera, within video footage or within a photograph. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those things, the way that Peel explores how that's uh, in some ways uh, it, it's there's almost a doom nobility to some of the ways that these characters try to try to respect 
in a way, in their own way, the world around them, like the you know the horses of of the Haywood Ranch, mm-hmm. or uh, Stephen Yun's character who's got kind of this <laughs> this theme park who kind of has his own way of trying to harness the world around him and has a, a tragic backstory involving uh, some uh, entertainment industry use of animals gone horribly wrong, mm-hmm. and yet he's off. He kind of ends up. Um, attempting to uh try try a different angle on that on that whole enterprise mm-hmm. and it's a lot of the way these characters go about it, it is not exactly admirable but it's understandable it's a very human impulse mm-hmm. and i just found it really interesting to you know as the film go- went on realizing oh this is what he's doing this is really interesting because at first there's so much going on that it seems like it's a little bit scattershot. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of key into what Peel is doing, it gets very interesting. He's a fascinating judge of character, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I, and ev- this is even back to his sketch days when he was on Key and Peel. I feel like he's got a good sense for one, what's funny, two, what's terrifying, and three, what makes people tick. Um, I think uh, in this one in particular, he's so keyed into what each of his characters want, even when they're not saying out loud what it is that they want. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the direction around Otis and Emerald, because they're the two central characters that we spend the most time with. Um, Emerald seems to be just chasing the next thing. She's very full of life and very interested in everything that is not home. It almost feels like she just wants to get away from the ranch in a couple of interesting ways. And then Otis is very much tied to the land and to the home. And I don't think that he would ever say that he is motivated by this. But I think that there's this very strong sense of duty that his character feels towards the ranch, towards maintaining his father's legacy, and most of all, towards the horses that are on the ranch. There's this repeated line where he keeps talking to Emerald about how he can't leave because he has mouths to feed, specifically those horses. And I think that that's just such a powerful way of getting at Otis's motivations. And I think it really shines through basically everything else the character does in the plot. And Daniel Kaluuya is so good in this film, isn't yes. he? He's he's playing a very taciturn character. Mm-hmm. So it's not a a showy performance, but he's so good like you say of conveying this this bottled up uh sense of of pride, of duty, um of of love for his family, even if it doesn't show itself outwardly, that mm-hmm. I think I think he's a fascinating person to watch on camera. He's also really like I, this is the first time I've seen him in a comedic role. I don't even know if there are any of his film roles have had like strong comedic beats that I can think of. Um, yeah, when I think of him, I mostly think of Get Out and Judas and the Black Messiah. And widows as well. He's very scary. Yes, in widows. yes, and, and um, and but none of them really call on him to flex comedic muscles all that much. Mm-hmm. This film, he is called to do it. He's got he's got a deadpan that I mean, I don't want to get too hyperbolic here, but it, <laughs> it's kind of like a Buster Keaton kind of kind uh-huh. of vibe where he he doesn't rea- give you a big reaction. Like his his face is very impassive, but the way he underreacts to things is 
hilarious, and I love it. There's a moment where he reaches over and simply pushes down the lock button on a door of a truck <laughs> that had me howling with and, laughter. And he does it, you know, completely, you know, stolid, no facial expression <laughs> change whatsoever. It's wonderful. Can we talk about Kiki Palmer as well? Sure. I loved her in this as well. Completely different mode, completely different, like type of acting from what Daniel Kaluuya is doing, I think. And I think the two of them complement each other incredibly well. So She's definitely the yin to his yang, Mm -hmm. whereas he's very impassive and undemonstrative. She's very mercurial. She's she's loud. She's got more of the... uh, She she gets most of the laugh lines Mm -hmm. in the film, and that's really really fun to watch as as well, especially once you get a little bit into the picture and kind of realize that underneath the the sibling kind of uh, you know, sniping a little bit, they do have a deep affection for each other. Mm-hmm. And again, that's just, it's I mean, I guess it's evidence of what you said that Peel's just very good at sketching characters in a way that's very vivid without either painting with too broad a brush or going, getting maudlin about it. He's, it's just the perfect blend of, of humor and sentiment and is just solid uh, character motivation writing. I think it's really strong. So did the mix of tones work for you? Because I feel like there was a lot of different ends of mm-hmm. the spectrum going on here. I, I think so. And I think this, like I mentioned earlier that Us, I liked, but I didn't love. And I think part of it was I didn't think that the the melding of tones in that film worked quite as well because there are Mm. comedic beats in that film and extremely serious, horrifying beats. And I didn't, I felt like they were a little bit like oil and water. They didn't really mix very well into something that felt cohesive. Mm -hmm. I think Nope, Peel walks that tightrope a lot, a lot better there because they're, like I said, it's just, it is one of the, Uh, It is his funniest film. Mm -hmm. And yet the humor doesn't take away from the horror. And it, it, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't quite know how he did it almost because there are moments that are very scary and then he cuts it with humor, but it doesn't undermine Mm -hmm. the, the overall tension in the scene. I just think that's, it's amazing how he's able to manage that here. I I think he's underlining instead of undermining, maybe like using Mm. that humor as a way to contrast without distracting from the inherent horror. And that by contrast kind of makes the horror a little bit more horrifying as well. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I just I love this movie so much and it's, I'm just kind of verklempt about like being able to watch like a big summer blockbuster that isn't necessarily tied to IP and I hate mm-hmm. sniping at IP but at the same time it's really refreshing to watch somebody tell a very unique and I don't know like standalone story. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say because mm-hmm. I, I I don't really see there being a sequel to this and it at the same time it feels like it's a, a complete story that has been fully earned and i don't need to know anything else about it right yeah it it feels and again this is what makes peel's films so such a breath of fresh air is they are they're tremendously entertaining like he this i one of the problems with you know quote-unquote elevated horror is that they a lot of the lesser exemplars of the genre (laughs) tend to put the cart before the horse and think like oh i've got this really serious metaphor and that's the important thing Mm -hmm. is to you know be really meaningful and they kind of leave the 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 entertaining genre goods in in the dust Mm -hmm. and i think peel he he knows how to keep 
more than one ball in the air at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's so wonderful to see him sort of get in, establish his premise, tell a very interesting story with it, get out and, and don't, and he doesn't feel the need to sort of dangle a sequel tease or, uh, or a cliffhanger or of some sort. It's just, he told the story he wants to tell and that's good enough for him. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful. And I think with Nope, he also, it's, it's the movie of his that feels like has the strongest emotional center. Mm. I felt um, more emotionally invested in these characters than I have in any other character in, in his other films. Um, and I think, I mean, Us was very, <laughs> Us had a way of reeling you in as well, but I felt like there was, a, there was an abstraction to, to that situation just because it was so out there. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the end of the day, Nope, if you put aside all of the the sci-fi horror elements, it's kind of just a story about people trying to make their way in the world and uh, doing going about it in uh, more or less uh, successful and laudable ways. Mm-hmm. And I I really prize his ability to to be able to do that again without without overdoing it so much that we sort of forget that oh this is a f- a fun summer horror comedy it should also it should have those goods as well i'm curious to know like if the metaphor came first or if the metaphor kind of appeared out of part of the creative process i think with this movie because it does feel like get out is built around a very specific metaphor and us Mm -hmm. is built around a very specific metaphor and this one feels like it's a little bit more organic because it is built around that emotional core and that relationships specifically between these two siblings so as well as like you know all of all of the wild animal stuff that i was thinking about but that really doesn't seem like that's even all that necessary to the plot of the story. I think that you could tell this story without any of that additional, like, here are the themes of the movie that's being kind of Mm -hmm. signaled here. It wouldn't be nearly as good a story as it is in the way that Peel is telling it necessarily. But I think that you could still have a very strong story that maybe was about something slightly different if you weren't involving those horror elements, if that makes any sense. I I kind of wonder, I, 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 I haven't really read a whole lot of interviews with Peel about this film because I, I wanted to go into it pretty fresh. So, Same. so I've, I left that alone, but I would be very interested to hear him talk it, about what, what relationship, if any, there is with Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm. which, you know, while, whereas this is a horror film. So the, the attitude towards the possibility of, of extraterrestrial life isn't as rosy as Spielberg's mm-hmm. is in Close Encounters. There's definitely a kinship that I saw in terms of the the way that it sees kind of what what the idea of extraterrestrial life can can mean. What sort of resonances underlie that? Hmm. And it's every bit as serious about dealing with and examining those resonances as Close Encounters is, even if it com- comes at the idea from a different genre place. There's also that theme, I think in both of them, of a an absent father figure 
Mm-hmm. It's just kind of underlying both of those as well. And I think that both movies get at those in, across very different ways. I think Close Encounters is much more sympathetic towards that absent father figure for sure. Um, but there's that thread there. And I think it lends an additional, I don't know, edge, I think, of pathos just a little bit to the Haywood Ranch. And I think the thing that I like about it the most is that it is very understated for the most part. Like, it's there. Both of these siblings are aware that it's there and they don't need to talk about it explicitly, except like at one point where it does come up in dialogue and it does feel pretty natural to me. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's also kind of the, one of the, uh, I probably the, the first image that you see in this film is that, uh, what is famously the, the first movie ever made, which is this two second looped, uh, image of a black jockey riding, riding a horse. Mm-hmm. And we learn from, uh, Emerald's spiel that she gives at this, at this early, uh, shoot that they're trying to, you know, uh, wrangle a horse for that, uh, nobody knew, knows his name. Like the, the very first star of a movie, uh, happened to be black. And also happens to have been forgotten by history. Mm-hmm. And that too kind of suggests kind of this melancholy or, or elegiac uh, atmosphere to the way that Peel is telling this story about the, the Haywood Ranch as well, which is also sort of like, you know, it's not really they're, they're having trouble getting work. The, the, patriarch of the ranch has you know dies within the first 10 minutes of the film Mm -hmm. and we get the sense from the way that otis is running things that he's he's not sure if it's going to keep going and if the if the ranch goes away kind of what what trace will be left behind of it and what trace will be left behind of him Mm -hmm. and he's not sure and that's really again just a, a really resonant idea and when the unearthly goings on make their appearance that kind of creates that 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 like you said it underlines that mm-hmm. that kind of melancholy because there might be another reason why they might not be around for much longer yeah and it's another reason that a lot of people may not necessarily believe or pay all that much attention to um i don't know thematically it feels very very cohesive even though there's a ton of like these disparate parts of of ufo's and missing fathers and um, horses, like all things that I never would have thought to put together. And I think the way that they're put together and the way that they're shot when they're put together is just so striking that it's it's going to stick with me for a while. It feels a little bit of a piece with sort of uh, more contemporary Westerns. Like you think of, you know, Unforgiven mm-hmm. or or other Westerns that are kind of about the the disappearance of the American West, about the the idea that the the self sufficient cowboy on his horse, um, what that figure represents, and how that thing kind of being consigned to the dustbin of history, what that how how that can be sad, and kind of what that says about our current cultural moment as americans Mm -hmm. and uh i i mean it's no accident that uh peel puts a poster for buck and the preacher (laughs) which we are talking about in the watch list segment coming up yeah that's in the background and uh you know i'd like to say that you know we knew that there's you know some going to be that tie-in somehow (laughs) but you know we just got lucky i guess but buck and the preacher you know is is in the background in a lot of these shots Mm -hmm. and that is obviously a traditional western and that's too kind of a reminder of there are a lot of people uh 
who were the protagonists of their own stories in the past and nobody knows their name mm-hmm. and nobody rem- remembers them mm-hmm. and that that's sad um but it's also it, it's compelling in a way it kind of it's it's a driving force for the rest of us to sort of make the most of the time we have mm-hmm. and i think that's that's wonderful that he's able to work that into a move you know what could be just kind of a sci-fi horror pot boiler yeah absolutely agreed it's it's the kind of thing that i don't want to forget and it also makes me want to like go out and try to unearth th- these other things that may have been forgotten or left by the wayside and i don't know i can't ask for anything more from a summer popcorn movie that's also a lot more than a summer popcorn movie. Yeah, well, that that's our, our review of Nope. And needless to say, we're pretty high on it. We like it quite a bit and recommends that you go out and see it. It is in theater starting this weekend. So it ought to be at a theater uh, near, near most of our listeners. So hopefully you have a chance to go see it. Like we said, highly recommend it. Buck and the Preacher was featured in the background of a few shots in Nope. It's going to be also featured on the second segment where we talk about it for our watch list pick coming up in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So as is our usual practice now, Sarah, you posed a question on Twitter over the weekends about uh, what was the question that you asked? So I asked... Um, what's the movie you're most looking forward to this year? I think we already mentioned that Nope was probably the movie that I was most anticipating. I'm delighted that that paid off. Um, but I wanted to know what's the movie you're, you're most looking forward to seeing this year. And we got a couple of really good answers from, from our audience over there on Twitter. Christy Olson also said, Nope. Um, good taste right there. (laughs) She also said, she said, See How They Run, and the Knives Out sequel, which might be my second most anticipated movie of this year. I'm really looking forward to Glass Onion as well. Yes, Can't please. Can't wait. Um, I, you know, I, I'm also glad that Christy mentions She Said, because I, I, kinda, I knew that was coming up, but her mention of it caused me to sort of look it up and, and refresh my memory on what it's about. And that is a crazy cast scout got going carrie mulligan and zoe kazan by themselves are good enough draw for me to to see a film and i'm 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 all in that's a movie that i'm looking forward to now as well (laughs) that was a movie that wasn't on my radar at all so i'm looking forward to it doubly so thank you christy for for your answer there ron sturry responded with killers of the flower moon wonderful book i hope the movie can live up to it and yeah, I, I agree. I read the book about a month ago in anticipation of the movie coming out. And honestly, I can't see any other filmmaker adapting this material like Scorsese probably could. So I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, to to be honest, The Northman was probably my most anticipated film of the year. But after that, Killers of the Flower Moon is up there. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Scorsese does with it, even though I haven't read the book yet. So I better get on that. Time's de- running out. You definitely should. It's It's definitely worth reading and hopefully Scorsese can do the material justice because there's a lot there 
But again, if anybody can do it, I, th- I think he'll be able to manage that. We also heard from Tyler Huckabee, who gave a list. He did say that Nope is also up there, but he also mentioned 3,000 Years of Longing uh, from my beloved George Miller and <laughs> Don't Worry, Darling, both of which look like they're probably very bonkers. I mean, I'm curious to see George Miller work in a in a fantasy vein. So I'm 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 intrigued by three thousand years of longing as well. And I mean Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba, I mean combination for the ages right there. That looks really great as well. Thanks everyone for for writing in and sharing your thoughts. If you uh, missed out on the chance to respond to that Twitter poll, but you still want to share some of your most anticipated picks for this year, obviously we're still all ears. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about Buck and the Preacher coming up. So now it's time for the watch list segment, the part of the show where typically one host picks a film that they have seen and loved for the other host who has not seen it and hopefully will love it to watch. Uh, but this time around, we're doing something a little bit outside the box, Sarah. Mm-hmm. You were the one who picked the film for this week, but you wanted to pick one that neither of us had seen that we were going to both go into fresh. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to, I don't know. This was one of those things where I could have just picked another horror movie or another sci-fi movie to pair with Nope and probably called it good. And I don't know about you. We've talked a lot about horror lately this summer. I could talk about horror all day, but also (laughs) we should probably mix it up a little bit. And this seemed like a good opportunity to kind of brush up on that history that I just hadn't caught up with necessarily. Like there is that thread in Nope about the unnamed black jockey riding a horse being the first movie star and nobody knows who he is and this was this felt like a way for me to kind of i don't know amend some of those blind spots that i have which is why i ended up picking buck and the preacher which is a western that every time i talked about it this week nobody had heard of which was kind of wild to me I hadn't heard of it either before you suggested it as the watch list pick. So, you know, I'm I'm guilty as charged there as well, Um, which is strange because it's directed and stars uh, the great Sidney Poitier. I mean, not exactly a small name, but uh, it's it seems like it's one of those films that has just kind of it's not as well remembered as other Westerns of its ilk. Mm -hmm. And it was the first movie that he ever directed. Like you'd think that would be like a landmark that people would remember. Yeah, well, we're going to remember it on the watch list segment this week. Uh, Buck and the Preacher is a Western directed by and starring Sidney Poitier. It also co-stars Harry Belafonte. Mm. They play the duo named in the title. As the opening title crawl makes clear, the expansion westward across the North American continent in the second half of the 1800s wasn't just something that white pioneers did. Many black people did as well, disillusioned by the failure of reconstruction and looking for a haven from the gym crow laws and sharecropping that was taking hold in the south but racism as american as apple pie follows them west with night riders doing everything in their power to discourage black people from forging their lives out west poitier's buck is a wagon master tasked with shepherding one caravan of black people safely west 
Belafonte's preacher is the slippery, ethically dubious man of God who falls in with them. So, Sarah, this is, um, like we mentioned, this is a film that neither of us had seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had picked it. So I'm curious to know uh, if you went into this with uh, any particular expectations or anything that you were anticipating, and how were those borne out when you actually saw the film? It's funny. I was expecting a slightly more, I don't know, straightforward Western, I suppose, Um and I say that not being a Western person at all. So I think I have a very like strong opinion of, or I have a very strong like stereotype for what a Western is going to be, where it's going to be just like a lot of, of horses and dust and people sort of galloping around. And you do get some of that here, but I don't think I was expecting the assuredness of the direction and, and the fact that most of this movie is spent communicating its point with a lot of like long silences. And I think that was the thing that struck me the most was whenever something tense is going on, we know exactly where everybody in power like lies and where they all stand with each other purely by the way that they're looking at each other and by the way that they regard each other. And then maybe there'll be some additional dialogue about it. But for the most part, it's just about people sort of sizing each other up, not necessarily like looking at each other down the ends of a street with a tumbleweed going in between (laughs) them, Um, which honestly I found to be kind of a refreshing way to, I don't know, frame all of these different people. It, It felt like a slightly dustier Western. It felt like a slightly more colorful Western in terms of like the dress and the set design. It felt more realistic to me than most of the other classical Westerns I've seen. Maybe that's because a lot of it seems to have been shot on location. And maybe that's just because of the assuredness of Sidney Poitier's direction. I'm not entirely sure where to put my finger on that, but it did feel like a very strong and realistic and well-studied Western to me. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, I I liked this film quite a bit. I, I'm su- kind of surprised that I'd never heard of it before, considering how strong of a, especially as a first feature it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does feel like a lot of you know more famous Westerns um, are, are very concerned with the mythology of the American West. Either they're concerned with, you know, like they – they are exemplars of that mythology or they're concerned with deconstructing that mythology somehow. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Buck and the Preacher is I guess it kind of deconstructs it, but it doesn't deconstruct in the way like a a revisionist Western, like maybe the wild bunch does where, you know, whereas before it's, you know, white hats and black hats and very uh, sanitized violence and the wild bunch is, you know, everybody's kind of an anti-hero and it's very bloody. And that's kind of the revisionism, the, the form that the revisionism takes this one. It's, it's just, it's not all that interested in the uh, American cowboy as uh, a representative of some sort of ideal of the American West, because that presupposes basically a white uh, Western story, mm-hmm. and it ignores the presence of black people in that story. I mean, you don't think of, you know, spaghetti westerns or Clint Eastwood. You know, black people don't really f- figure all that strongly in in those films. They're in them, but they're kind of they're side characters. And this is a film that's like, you no, know, black people are the main characters in this story mm-hmm. because there are black people who are the main characters in their own story back in the pioneer days. People just don't hear about them. And that opening title crawl emphasizes that, you know, there are a lot of black people who are in unmarked graves out in the West because they just, they died out there, whether through violence or through just not having the resources they needed. And this film is going to kind of tell a story along those veins, 
things. And that means that there's not really a myth built up around it, mm-hmm. but that also frees the film to sort of not be tied to a myth and sort of forge its own path. It feels kind of like a necessary corrective, I think, to a lot of that that myth-making. And I think a lot of that myth-making, both like on the soundstage and just sort of codified, this is not to say that all Westerns are bad necessarily, but there is a very like sort of stiff image that I have in my head of a lot of Westerns, largely because of that myth-making. And because this isn't interested in that, it's much more interested in showing like the world as it actually is. And I think that that gives the characters room to breathe and grow and be actual people when they need to be in a way that really honestly felt quite refreshing. And because these characters aren't tied to a specific like Western mythological archetype, then they can play out that story in some interesting sort of ways. So Sidney Poitier as, as this wagon master, I think is probably about as close to like a traditional cowboy that you're going to get in this story. And he's not remotely interested in being the cowboy. He really just feels this sense of duty towards getting a group of people to the safety that they need and they desire and they require. And because he made that promise, he's going to do it for them come hell or high water. And then Harry Belafonte is just, oh, he's such a delight. <laughs> I, I really want to talk about Belafonte in this film because, you know, Poitier, you know, he's such a, a luminary of, of American acting mm-hmm. that you kind of go into a film like this expecting like, okay, he's just got so much presence. You kind of expect him to be the highlight. But I actually think I like Belafonte's performance even more. Huh. It's just, it's so completely free of vanity the the uh the preacher you know he's he's got these these really you know his his teeth are really you know rotten mm-hmm. uh he's he's got kind of he's like i said he's ethically dubious he's he's not the most sympathetic character at first and yet by the end of the film it he just has so much great chemistry with Poitier and he his character is kind of the character in the, the film who has made the greatest journey mm-hmm. it feels like it's a more challenging role and belafonte just hits it out of the park i was really impressed with with what he did in this film me too i feel like we could have included this movie in our in our buddy themed episode last yeah. week as well because there's definitely kind of an odd couple sort of chemistry between these two actors and harry belafonte i just i love how he's he's kind of I don't know. I, I felt like there was a little bit more than what meets the eye when we first meet him as a character. Um, but the depths that keep getting unearthed, I think, are, are depths that he is willing to show more and more of as the movie goes along. So for quite a lot of the movie, he's kind of in this mode of when he sees another person, he's almost a little bit exaggerated. He's going to do a lot of sweeping bows and he's going to smile very broadly and he's going to introduce himself by his full name and his full title of the church that he represents. Um, and he's also carrying this massive Bible that's probably about as big as he is. And... It feels like he's putting on an act sort of in in the vein of a revival preacher at first. And then it turns out that he's putting on an act in a way that makes people not look up to him, but almost underestimate him in a way. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I love the most about his performance is the shift that he does from putting on this act when somebody is watching him to the moment when that other person turns their back and you can see the look on his face change and you can see how he feels and thinks about that person as they're looking away and how he can get one over on them. And I just, I love that, 
that shift because he's not doing a ton with his posture necessarily. It's all in the face and his face is doing some pretty incredible things here. He, I, I love, so the very first scene that we see him in with uh, a white person. Mm-hmm. So the, the first scene, the first introduction we get to him is a, a confrontation between him and, uh, and Buck. Buck needs a fresh horse. And so he kind of like rides up to where the preacher is camping and sort of just takes his horse and doesn't really ask for it. He just takes it. And uh, that kind of sets up the antagonism that drives their relationship for the rest of the film. But the, the first time that we see, and in that scene, of course, that, you know, the preacher is sort of, he's, we we get a good sense for kind of what sort of person he is. He's, he's, he's amusing. He's, he's slippery, but he's also, he's not, he's, got a wiliness to him that's really interesting he'll zag on you he'll throw his coffee after you and say you forgot something after you steal his food (laughs) right um but then the first time we see him with with a white character he's kind of doing the whole shuck and jive thing because he knows that that's what they expect of him they kind of they expect him to be servile they expect him to be not so bright they expect him to just jump at the first chance of money even that even if that means selling out uh somebody who's not done anything to him or at least that they don't think has done anything to him mm-hmm. and Belafonte's performance in in that scene is fascinating because he he plays the part to a T you know he he bows really low he sweeps his hat off his head he he uh kind of speaks in this uh very exaggerated patois where he's you know putting the the letter S at the ends of all of his words. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he knows how to play the part that this uh, white knight writer expects of him in order to number one, not make himself a target. And number two, kind of like you said, make sure that he gets underestimated so that he can maybe get the drop on him later. And I think it's just, it's fascinating the way Belafonte makes that clear while also making sure that it makes sense that, uh, the the night writer buys the performance. It's mm-hmm. a it's a good performance in a dual sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way that that scene is set up too, because Belafonte is walking around um this the small like town. It's basically like a ramshackle, just been set up like clapboard town out west, and the night riders all come riding into town. And the way that they ride in would be the way that like the heroes probably would in another western. And Harry Belafonte is he's he's standing next to his horse and we see him look up over his horse at all of these other riders and he realizes like these guys are coming into town i'm about to be in trouble and we get all of this just through that quick look and then the way that the camera sort of frames the riders as they ride around him in the middle of the street they surround him he's kind of at a disadvantage because he's standing on the ground and they're all, all on large horses around him they're almost framed sort of from the ground up as well and that's all done without any need for dialogue. You don't need to be told what's going on. You just understand implicitly, like, this is a dangerous situation to be in, and it's going to be bad unless this guy can figure out a way to get out of it. And I just, I really appreciated the economy that, that, um, Sidney Poitier uses in the direction in a lot of these scenes because he doesn't really waste words telling us what we already know. He's going to just set up the situation and then let us be surprised by how it's going to play out and how his characters are going to get out of it. It's the film is really good at conveying the way that the, the black people in this film, they, they just, there's no way that they can be at ease. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, so the, 
they're trying to reach kind of this valley. They've got uh, somebody in this wagon train who's uh, a soothsayer of sorts who who kind of says there's go- there's this promised land of sorts that we're all going to go to and uh, it's going to be wonderful. We can build our lives there. And, and that's going to be where they're going to be able to uh, build a life for themselves if they reach it. But until they get to that point, it's very clear that the the world around them is not safe. And I think Poitiers is very intentionally building on the fact that, you know, a lot of these movies about pioneers, there's always sort of the feeling that, oh, you know, we're just one broken axle away from calamity. Um, and he takes that, which is also true of the black settlers, and makes it clear that they also have to worry about just white people riding up and burning everything they own for no reason. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I think it just, it lends an extra little frisson to the, to the entire story when you kind of you you begin to find yourself in that own headspace and in some ways it, it sells that tension of the pioneer struggle a lot more effectively than maybe a more traditional pioneer film might i think it does too because again it's not interested in mythologizing the west as this previously unsettled land that's been untouched by anybody mm-hmm. else i think it's showing the west as being a place where a lot of people like wanted to go was also stolen and that kind of comes into into play later on in the movie as well when um buck ends up calling on the help of a local indian tribe to try to help them out of this situation and the indians say like no absolutely not you were involved in driving us out of our land why should we help you um and i think that that i don't know it it feels like it's humanizing on a level that I just don't see very often necessarily. And I think it also lends a much more believable sense of tension than just, oh, this axle is broken. And so we're going to die out here of, of dysentery, essentially. I I love that scene uh, with, uh, with the native americans where buck is 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 begging them you know mm-hmm. like we 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 need uh ways to defend ourselves we need food we need supplies we need horses um because the the you know these white people are going to kill us if mm-hmm. we if we don't have those things and uh the uh leader that they're they're speaking with comes right back with saying like we've got our own battle to fight mm-hmm. they're coming for us too we can't help you not because we don't think you're struggling, but also we, we've got our own problems and, you know, it mere kinship in the face of a common enemy isn't going to be enough to like, that's not a get out of jail free card for you. There, there's a complex web of tensions in this film mm-hmm. that I really appreciated that I feel like often um, is not something that you see in, in other films that have kind of to juggle the, the the black experience with the native american experience with the experience of white settlers like there's always kind of one group that's privileged above the rest that that we kind of like are rooting for above the rest and i feel like in this film you i mean the obviously the the white people are not the good guys Mm -hmm. but it's it doesn't stoop to the level where the native americans are just happy to to help out the the black people just because they're both being uh, oppressed by the same people. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it works. And I, I appreciate the maturity of Quatier's touch in making that very clear and not letting Buck off the hook for the role that he played in pushing the uh, Native Americans off their lands. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I appreciate too, that this movie also doesn't let, 
you know, the, the good white people in the towns off the hook mm-hmm. necessarily e- either. So you have the night Riders who are actively antagonizing this wagon train as they're making their way west. But then you also have these much more established towns of white people who are happy to live because they're doing well and why should they bother about anybody else? Um, at one point, Buck and the Preacher go looking for the night Riders in this town and they find themselves in a brothel that's being run by one of the women. And she's, she gets furious when Buck and the Preacher enter her establishment because she says, and I quote, I have a reputation to uphold here. Like the racism is very clear and it's purely because she, I don't know, she, she just wants to uphold her own status in this society. And I don't know, it, it felt very true and it felt very kind of damning and it felt like, I don't know, an, a more accurate portrait, I think, of a lot of the people who would have been settling the land at this time. And I appreciate well, the, that. Even the the sheriff of the town, the you know, the sheriff, when, when the Night Riders first come into his town, he kind of takes their leader task. He says, I don't want you, you know, harassing any any wagon trains, you know, if they're black people, like they're, they haven't done anything wrong here. So, you know, hands off. So he's, quote unquote, one of the good ones. Mm-hmm. But um, it as soon as uh, Buck and the preacher put a, a foot wrong, uh, the, the sheriff rounds up a posse and they, they hunt them down. Mm-hmm. And it's on the side of law and order, but it's it's also very much um, not the sort of situation where the sheriff's sort of the good guy who who helps out in the end. At the end of the day, the, the sheriff, if not a net negative, is just simply a non-factor in whether or not the our heroes are going to uh survive the day yeah and i i think that's it, it's telling that the film lets him be kind of a good guy while also being very clear-eyed about the fact that like this guy's not making a difference he's not doing any good at all because the law isn't set up to help any of the black wagon trains who are making their way through it's set up to maintain that quote-unquote law and order in the white town yeah yeah i i love that piece um just like i don't know i i just i love this movie i'm really glad that we watched it i, I feel like we got kind of lucky with this one honestly yeah i mean I, I can i can understand maybe why it doesn't have kind of the same uh place in the pantheon as you know some of the the bigger name westerns just because it is a first film so there, there's some shakier craft you know it's a little bit rougher around the edges but i just think the the storytelling and the performances are so strong i mean mm-hmm. you know quatier is great belafonte is great ruby d as wonderful. bucks as buck's wife is wonderful and, and a, one of the better women characters i've seen in, in a western in this period like she's she's so strong in herself and she has a very particular idea of what she wants and the things that she wants are are very understandable, but it's not the same sort of like masculine code of honor that Buck lives by, which is it's interesting to observe that tension. Mm-hmm. And Ruby D also gets the best line in the film when she talks about how she doesn't wanna she wants to go to Canada. She doesn't she doesn't want Buck to try to help this wagon train. And she says, You've done all you can for them. We need to get up to Canada because the the earth is just poisoned here there's a poison in the earth Mm -hmm. we can't raise children here no matter what happens the Mm -hmm. war changed nothing Mm -hmm. and that's such a uh you know it's a it's a punch in the gut line and it's also just it rings true and just deeply understandable uh about how 
you know, these, these characters, they kind of just, uh, <laughs> when, when things get bad enough, they kind of just have to look out for number one, because at a certain point, if they don't, they're dead. Mm-hmm. And that's so telling. And again, just a really welcome, complex note in a, in a, in a Western. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree. I also appreciate the way that she delivers a line about how if if Canada doesn't doesn't accept us either, then I'm going to walk to the ocean and I'm going to keep on walking. And the the level of despair in that kind of poeticism is something that also just it struck me as I was watching it, and I think it's going to stick with me for a really long time. Yeah, I'm really glad we both watched this. I'm glad me too. Glad you you took a chance on recommending a film sight unseen that we could experience for the first time. It was fun to go exploring. Yeah. For sure. That is our review of Buck and the Preacher. It's uh, available on demand on Amazon if you want to check it out for yourselves. It's only a couple bucks, so definitely worth that cost to to see kind of a hidden gem, Mm -hmm. uh, I think. Hopefully hidden no more or for for much longer, honestly. Um, It's coming to the Criterion Collection in August, so very soon it's going to be available on Blu-ray as well. Oh, in in the Criterion Collection as well. You, there's really no excuse. Hopefully, it gets more more exposure. Uh, of course, may, maybe a little bit because of the Criterion Collection, but let, let's just say that they're <laughs> going to get the coveted seeing and believing bump. So you know, it's it's got that going for it as well, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for tuning into this week's show, listeners. Uh, we are going to be taking next week off. It is summer, so we're going to take a little bit of a summer vacation for ourselves, but we'll be back the week after with a review of Bullet Train, which I know, Sarah, you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to quite a lot as well. Yeah. Brad Pitt action movie on a train. I mean, what more do you really need? I was going to recommend uh, Snowpiercer for the watchlist segment, but Sarah had actually already seen it. So way to see a movie, Sarah. <laughs> the nerve. Uh, so uh, I still have to come up with a watchlist pick to go with Bullet Train. So we'll be announcing that on Twitter in the days ahead. Don't miss that either. But that'll do it for this week's show. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?